Hi everyone, you're listening to the United City Greensboro Podcast, a church in the heart of Greensboro, North Carolina, with a desire to practice the way of Jesus for the renewal of all things. Today's talk is our Vision Sunday 2021 talk. You can learn more about United City at unitedcitygso.com. Enjoy today's teaching. Good morning, family. My name is Morgan Harvey, and I'm the operations director here at United City. <laughs> it's, it's not that exciting. It's not that exciting, but <laughs> thank you. Um, I'm going to be doing the reading of the scriptures today. So if you guys want to open your Bibles to Matthew 7, verses 13, I believe it's also going to be on the screen as we dive into our teachings. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. We're going to be covering one more, one more verse in John chapter 10, verse 10. The thief comes only to st- steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Uh, good morning. It's, it's, it's so good to see you all this morning. Um, happy birthday. Uh, we're four years old today as a community. And um, I, yeah, it's, it's pretty wild to think about, to be honest with you, that four years ago, we were beginning this journey of being a church in our city and here we are now after a long winter, so to speak, in uh, exile, it feels like, scattered across our city in house church communities. But uh, it, it goes without saying this morning that we are so deeply grateful and appreciative for all of the hands, the hard work, the time, the energy, the resources that have been put into this space that have been put into this place that we now call home, this place we call the new room, where hopefully we see fruits of new life, fruits of presence, of formation, and hospitality all through the week in our city. So many of you have had such a role to play in this place coming alive. And it is a continual work in progress, I will say that. But here we are. We've made it this far, and I'm so grateful and so very excited. Also, just so you know, today's talk is a little bit of a teaser for what is to come. So it's kind of like an appetizer before the entree. So please just kind of have that in the back of your thought, back of your thoughts as we move forward in today's talk. It's more of a vision series than it is a vision day. This rhythm of life idea is kind of our 2021 vision series as we step into this new season as a community. I also hope that um, you are going to be taking notes this morning. We have free journals out front we'd love to give you. If you're new, we, we encourage you to take notes, to engage. This is not a monologue. This is a dialogue, hopefully. And our hope is in this time, it leads us into transformation, not just more information. I don't just want to dump content for you. My desire is that we become more like Jesus. This is a time that we come together to sharpen one another, to celebrate God, to experience the manifest presence, and to be sent out in mission into the world. 
That's my hope. That's my desire. And that is our desire as a community. March 15th, 2020 was the last time we gathered publicly and in person at 10 a.m. 543 days since the last time we gathered publicly at 10 o'clock in the morning. 77 Sundays ago. Roughly 18 months of being scattered across our city. And here we are now, regathering, moving into this new rhythm and season. However, I will say to you, we have the opportunity to pivot, to respond to what we believe God is doing at a macro level in the world and in the West, especially within the church. To be able to lay a foundation of the reality that we are most formed in micro-communities. We are most shaped and most discipled and trained in small communities together. This is not enough. This is not the fullness of life in the local church and the mission of God in the world. But it's been a long time, and here we are now. In March of 2020, the coronavirus launched all of us into a new reality, to a new experience. Disturbance, upheaval, turmoil, confusion, chaos, and disruption entered into the narrative of our lives almost at once. I remember on March 12th of last year, I was having lunch at Jake's Diner when I found out that the ACC tournament had been canceled at the Greensboro Coliseum just a few miles down the road. And I was like, what is happening? Are we in a movie? Like, is this real life? Next day comes the NCAA tournament canceled. What is going on? And then we find out that all of the schools are going to be shut down until May. And I'm like, that's a long time. Like, that's like, I'm like, I wish I was in elementary school right now. Like, what is, what is this? Why can this not happen years ago? You know, that's a kid's dream. We're not going back to snow day for like two months. Okay. Life changed overnight and we entered into a new reality and a new narrative for us as people in the West and across the world. We were officially introduced to disruption and the control of the future that we in the West thought we once had slipped through our fingertips. Surprisingly, if you remember, we were right in the middle of the Lenten season as a global church. A word that means long day. And the season in the liturgical calendar that commemorates the 40 days Jesus spent in the wilderness. We had just launched into Lent. And would it not be so that we as a global people all together at once entered into a mass Lenten season, a global wilderness? Is that not ironic? We as people 
were entering into the wilderness. A long day. What felt like a blizzard turned into the winter, and what felt like a winter turned into what Andy Crouch referred to as an ice age. We thought it was just a blizzard. A couple weeks were out. And then it became a couple of months. We thought it'd be a winter. And then it turned into an ice age. Yet, dear friends, it is in the wilderness where God does something new. It is in exile where God forms and shapes and calls his people. It is in the aremas, the hidden places, the desert places, where God springs forth a new bloom. His tangible presence in the narrative of the scriptures came in the wilderness. His servants, like Moses, were shaped in the crucible of the wilderness. His kingdom was announced by John the Baptist. Where? In the wilderness. His son was strengthened in the wilderness. And now, in 2021, his church pruned, refined, called to repentance in the wilderness, pruned for something new. Listen, the old is gone. The new has come. And the prayer is not to go back to Egypt. Oh, y'all talking today. Okay. <laughs> Some of y'all are like, I grew up in a Presbyterian church. We did not talk like this. Okay. <laughs> Why are you raising your hands in worship? I don't understand. Uh, something new. Something beautiful happens in the wilderness across the narrative of the historic church. As Mark Sayers says, crisis precedes renewal. Crisis always precedes renewal. Anytime you study church history and look at revival, look at renewal, look at awakening, crisis always came beforehand. Social upheaval, moral decay, turmoil in the church. The wilderness is the gateway to the promised land. It is the, the portal into awakening. And it's the passage into renewal. But it requires a stripping away of our facade of independence. Especially for those who live in the modern West. Crisis precedes renewal. I remember last year hearing Rich Velotis say, We do not lose control of our lives. What we lose is the illusion that we were ever in control in the first place. Here's a reality check for all of us. You were never in control in the first place. The future has always been uncertain. And 2020 exposed that reality. The disruption of last year and the, the life we are still living exposed a few things. It exposed the fragility of our physical lives. The variability of our economy. 
the pain of continued racial injustice in our world. And the false hope put in political figures and parties. The earth, in the language of Paul, is groaning in childbirth. Something new is coming, but pain always precedes new life. When something is born, trial always comes beforehand. And that is where we have found ourselves. The uniqueness of this moment that we're in in society is that what has happened isn't simply a recorded event in time. Most of us in the West are used to looking at major events that happened on a single day. We think about yesterday, 9-11, a recorded moment and event in our history. Many of you remember where you were September 9th, September 11th, excuse me, 2001. However, the uniqueness about the last year and a half is that it isn't a singular event but a process we are going through. Sayers says that COVID-19 didn't so much change the world as it signaled the world is changing. The wilderness, friends, is our new home. The Aramos is our new dwelling place. And we aren't in the promised land, but we aren't in Egypt anymore either. We are dwelling in the desert, and the only thing we can cling to is the spirit and the promises of God. And though he may only provide exactly what we need and nothing more, we are following a cloud of fire at night and a cloud in the day moving in the wilderness. In the midst of the disturbance over the last year and a half, We are still here. You are here. We are here as the people of God. The church has endured many more challenging seasons in its two millennia. We are still here. And the gates of Hades still can't stop the people of God. On Easter of 2020, a major tornado hit Chattanooga, Tennessee. And it devastated the area. And as local news was out reporting, looking at all the damage of what happened in Chattanooga, in a certain neighborhood, they heard the sound of music. In the midst of the decay and the rubble, they heard the sound of song. In the middle of the ruins of a torn down church building, First Wesleyan Church of Chattanooga, A woman was playing the piano. I have a picture for it. In the middle of the rubble, in the middle of a devastated community, the sound of it is well with my soul was being played on the piano. Resurrection Sunday, 2020. The woman playing the piano said to reporters, I knew it had more music in it. A prophetic statement, nonetheless. There is, my friends, beauty in the disturbance. Music in the angst. Order in the disorder of life. 
there's more music in us as the people of God. In the disturbance, may we continue to play the sounds of it is well with my soul. During this time, I have come to the realization that we as a human race long for Eden. We all long and yearn and crave Eden, the place of delight. We long for the garden place. We yearn for the place of delight. There is this constant sense among us, I believe, that the way things are aren't the way things should be. That the wilderness isn't truly where we belong. There is an angst in us when we look around the world that there must be more than this. There must be a state of flourishing that we were meant to live in. This is why, honestly, there's so much emotion around death. Why is it that we get so emotional when a loved one dies? Because it's not meant to be. It's not how the world was originally intended to function for humanity. Death was not meant to rule and reign. There is this longing in the human condition for Eden. There is this longing for flourishing. There is this longing for things to be made right. There is this longing for justice, for wholeness, for completeness, for harmony, for peace, for freedom, for security, for safety, for intimacy. For agape love. We long for Eden. I I saw a new news column that has just been released by The Atlantic. Entitled, How to Build a Life. Pointing Yourself Toward Happiness. Brand new news column from The Atlantic. We long for the blessed life. We long for the good life. Everyone's searching, trying to figure out how can we make it happen? How can we do it? How can we build a good life? How can we experience flourishing and wholeness? To the point where the Atlantic creates this brand new news column about ways that we as humans can move towards happiness. Move towards Eden, you might say. In the year 2000, 40 books had Happiness in the title. And by 2008, 4,000 had happiness in the title. We long for Eden. We long for flourishing. We all long for a rich sense of harmony, tranquility, peace, justice, and wholeness. We long, all of us, to be in the garden once again amidst the presence of God. And this is why the Son of God, the incarnate one, enters into the human project. We want Eden, but we can't get there on our own. We want harmony, but we can't get there on our own. This is why anxiety is at an all-time high. Because it's 2021, 
and we haven't progressed as much as we thought we would. We aren't where philosophers predicted we would be middle of the 20th century. It hasn't happened yet. In the midst of pursuing progress, we haven't gotten there, so we're freaking out. Go to Barnes and Nobles. There's like a whole book section that's just freak out. The world is falling apart. Democracy is in total upheaval. Education is certainly not making us more wise. We still have cures we haven't figured out yet that apparently we're supposed to be here by now. Progress hasn't happened like we thought it would. This is why Jesus enters into the human project. Education hasn't done it, and millennials are the most educated generation in U.S. history. The economy certainly won't do it. Politics certainly will not do it. Healthcare won't do it. Humans, apart from God, cannot move into Eden. What happened in Genesis chapter 11 with the story of the Tower of Babel continues to this very day. Humans seeking progress without submission to the presence of God. And there is a Babel-like kill switch inside of all of us that when we begin moving in that direction, it flips and chaos happens. Since Genesis chapter 11, it simply hasn't worked. The human project cannot experience progress without submission to the presence of God. Plus, on this side of the story, Utopia doesn't exist. In fact, did you know that the the Latin for utopia means nowhere? Look up the etymology of the word utopia. It literally means nowhere. A figment of our imagination. Which points, I think, even more to the fact that we are hardwired to long for the world that is to come. The one Jesus launched in the resurrection, the new creation. If utopia means nowhere, but we have this sense of wanting it, we have this longing for what is to come in the new creation. What the resurrection ultimately points to. So, Jesus comes onto the scene. And as we just read a bit ago in John 10.10, he came to bring life. And life to the full. The New Living Translation says, a rich and satisfying life. Holistically, he came to bring abundant life. Not just happiness, but fullness of life, joy, peace, wholeness, abundance, renewal, and what the Hebrew says, shalom. This is why he tells the thief on the cross, today you will be with me where? In paradise. The Greek word for paradise speaks to the idea of a garden. We have been longing for the garden since the very beginning of time. And Jesus says, I have come to give you life and life to the full. I'm not just a good idea. I'm not just giving you new principles to live by. I'm not just a a, a socio-political figure. I'm actually coming to give you abundant life. 
wholeness. I want to give you shalom. I want to give you peace. I want to give you harmony. Here's the catch. We long for Eden, but we also want to create and curate our own path of getting there. So what ends up happening is in the midst of our longing, we end up having some sort of conflict with the desires of our flesh as well. We want to get there, but we want to curate our own path of getting there. And it hasn't worked. There's so many conversations in the academic realm right now about progress. What does progress mean? Progress means there is a vision for what should be. And we should begin moving towards that end. If you look at all the data, it's not happening. We want Eden, but we want autonomy, liberty, and our own sovereignty. The idea of liberalism, freedom, not in so much the political sense, but really what our nation's project was founded upon, so to speak, which there's a lot of debate around that, has failed us. The American project has failed because we're not where we thought we would be despite the fact that we long for Eden. So we want to curate our own path, but the question then becomes, how do we blaze a trail to a place that we actually never been to and don't ultimately know where we're going? That's the philosophical question. This requires for us a new mental map. Jesus has been there before. He came from that place. And he shows us the way. In the realm of psychology, we all have in this room what is called a mental map. All of us have a mental map or what is also referred to as cognitive positioning system. We all have some sort of CPS, not GPS, CPS in our mind. And here's what this idea of cognitive positioning system speaks to. A cognitive positioning system develops from experience and education both of which are filtered through the brain's defaults. Your CPS is compromised of a unique network of influences and shortcuts that affect and infect your mental processing. All of your interpretations and subsequent decisions are made within this frame. We make automatic judgments from within our frames of reference. What does this mean for us? It simply means that an autonomous, rational self cannot psychologically blaze their own trail. You can't do it on your own. It's actually psychologically impossible. You have to have a frame of reference to go off of. So what does that mean for us? It means that all of us in this room are following some sort of mental map. All of us have some sort of frame of reference that we're going off of. This life script that has been laid before us. But the map of the culture that we live in has laid out this idea. You do it yourself and don't let anyone stop you. Popularized by the phrase, you do you. That is the mental map given to us, the frame of reference by the culture. What's interesting, however, and the dilemma that we face is that when you follow that idea, you are still submitting to an external mental map of reality. You're not totally autonomous. And the other challenge that comes into play with this life script of you do you, 
is that when the blind lead the blind, you only get more lost. When the blind lead the blind, you only get more lost. When a person drives without reference to where they are or are going, though they have autonomy behind the wheel, they still end up lost. If my wife is in the car and she's driving and she don't know where she's going, even though she got control, quote unquote, she's going to get lost. And I'm saying this because it's anecdotal and it's happened in our life multiple times. (laughs) The blind leading the blind only ends up in more people getting lost. Sure, you want autonomy? Totally. You'll be lost. You'll be lost. We want Eden, but we want to curate our own mental map and path of getting there. But the reality is we're still submitting to an external map of reality. So why not submit to one that leads to the flourishing of life? Let's just examine for a second the life scripts laid before us. What sociologists call the plausibility structures. The mental map of frame of reference of how we're moving throughout life. Is it producing what it promises? The answer is a resounding no. It's not. But Jesus comes and says, I've come to give life and life abundantly. Not only does Jesus come to give and diagnose the life we are longing for, he also comes to seek and save that which is what? Lost. (laughs) Two millennia ago, Jesus is like, first century Palestine, you lost. Gentiles, you lost. Hey, Israel, my family, you're lost. You guys in 2021? You want life? You're lost. And I've come to seek and rescue and bring wholeness to that which is lost and is wandering in the wilderness. When he says, narrow is the way that leads to life, which, by the way, when we look at this this passage of a wide road and a narrow road, you know what's interesting about roads? They got a left side and they got a right side. The wide has a left-leaning side, if you know what I'm saying. It also has got a right-leaning side as well. The narrow road also has a left-leaning side as well as a right-leaning side. What does this tell us? That the polarizing political identities of our world both lead to destruction and they have levels of life. But the reality is he has specifically called us to follow his way amidst our leanings. And that neither will ultimately lead to life and life abundantly on their own. So when he says narrow is the way that leads to life, he is saying that there is only one mental map that leads to life. There is only one lifestyle that leads to flourishing. And it is the life and lifestyle he has come to invite you and I to enter. When Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven, he talks about it in a sense of entering into it. He even says here that we should enter the narrow gate. He invites you and I to enter into this lifestyle. The word way in the Greek is the word hadas, and it has a dual meaning. It literally means a road. Like Wendover Avenue, Hadas. Okay? It also can mean a lifestyle or a life script, or in this case, a mental map. 
And he says specifically, narrow is the way. And the word narrow here, sure, it means the idea of it being close together, but also means hard, challenging, pressing, like that of grape juice getting pressed or an olive press in the first century. It's hard, it's narrow, but it leads to life. And that's what you crave. Talk to your friends on TikTok. They crave it. Talk to your friends on Instagram. They crave it. I know them people on Facebook. They craving something. (laughs) Shoot. Baby boomers on Facebook. Woo! Lord Jesus. (laughs) We could do a whole talk on baby boomers and social media. That'd be awesome. If we want to experience life, all of us, we must adopt the lifestyle that leads to life. Ultimately, being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what he did. When he says enter through the narrow gate, what he's saying is come to me. Come to me. I am the gate. I am the way. I am the life. He's inviting us to intimacy and then to begin to adopt his lifestyle. So how do we actually do that practically? That's always the question I've asked in my formation to Jesus. Okay, I get we're supposed to change. Okay, sure. Right? I, get, I, I get we're supposed to be on this journey, I think. Maybe it's just going to different services and events. and stuff. Maybe that's it, but it's not really working. So what is it? What it is is practicing the way of Jesus for the renewal of all things. How do we do it? How do we experience this abundant life? We believe as a community in this season that it is important for us to be very clear in what we are after. And what we feel like the gospels are teaching through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is to practice the way of Jesus for the renewal of all things. When we practice the way of Jesus, renewal happens. Resurrection comes. Wholeness enters into the story. Jesus goes on to share in Matthew chapter 7, a a passage of scripture that I love and have shared it many times in our community. I want to reiterate it. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Notice there's two groups of people who both hear, and there's only one that puts it to practice. All of us in this room hear, but do you practice? And notice he says, whoever hears these words of mine. Not the words of culture. Not your intuition or your gut, because we know we a mixed bag. Not the words of some podcast that you binge, and I love a good podcast. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. I want you all in this room to have a house built on the rock. So when the storm comes, you will still stand. Because guess what? The last year and a half, I believe the storm came. The streams rose, did they not? The winds struck spring of 2020. What happened? 
our practices and our discipleship to Jesus was exposed. And some of us who have been professing things with our mouths for decades, our practices were exposed. And the reality is Jesus says, why do you look at me and say, Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? I don't want, I don't want your lip service, bro. I want to know if you practice my teachings. You ever met somebody who uses a certain word all the time? You know? In our family, I've adopted a word from my wife's family that I love. I use it all the time. You guys probably know this if you know me. The word's Delbert. Okay? You're like, what is Delbert? I ask the same question, and now I use it all the time. A Delbert is somebody who does something that you're like, that was odd, weird, and or not right. You're like, that was a Delbert move. You know? It's just a word. I use it a lot. If you're around me enough, you'll know, oh, Spencer says Delbert a lot. Okay? Um, that's just something I say. Some of you might say things like, yo, or I don't know what else you say. You might say, whoa, like, I don't know your vernacular. Hello. Like, I don't know the words that you like to use. Some of you say right a lot. Some of you say yes a lot. Or I, I know some people say, say less. Like, that's a cool, young, hip phrase. Say less, bro. Like, that's a new thing. I, I don't know the cool words. But anyway, we all have words that we say. We all say y'all in this room, okay? Everybody in this room says y'all, all right? Jesus has a word. Jesus has a word, and that word is practice. The Greek word is poeo, and it appears in the New Testament 568 times. In Matthew chapter 7 alone, it appears eight. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' kingdom manifesto, the ethic or the way of life in the kingdom, it appears 16 times. That's his word. Practice, practice, practice. Pretty soon it's Allen Iverson. Practice over and over again, okay? We talking about practice. Anyway, if we want to experience life, we must adopt a lifestyle that leads to life. And to do so, we must practice the teachings of Jesus. Practice is the most foundational element of discipleship to Jesus and our new life in him. It's the most foundational element. And ultimately, the greatest part of that is we get to be with him. To spend time with our rabbi. Jesus says in Luke chapter 8, My mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. In other words, he's saying, you family if you do what I say. If you don't, you're not family. Paul tells Timothy, train yourself to be godly. It's all through the New Testament. We're going to push deeper into this over the next few weeks. So get along for the ride. Yes, this is fun. Albert Tate says this, the body and the brain reward practice. So when it comes time to execute in the game, you don't have to think about it. It's just an instinctive reaction. The same is true for your spiritual life. Philosopher Dallas Willard, we don't believe something by merely saying we believe it, or even when we believe that we believe it. We believe something when we act as if it were true. That is why we as a community are implementing a communal rule of life. A communal rule and rhythm of life, taken from the 6th century monastic idea of a rule of life, which when we hear the word rule, we go, oh no, Authority, ah, I'm scared, you know. The reality is we crave discipline. We crave a set of practices. And this new rhythm of life for us is a set of practices that orient us or index us toward Jesus and the life that he offers. 
These are practices that are upward, inward, outward spaces of formation and encounter with the living God. We want to communally practice these together. Rhythms and disciplines are meant to direct the heart, soul, mind, and strength, functioning like a mental map. That's what they are meant for. Ruth Haley Barton says, I cannot transform myself. What I can do is create the conditions in which the spiritual transformation can take place by developing and maintaining a rhythm of spiritual practices that keep me open and available to God. That's what you can do. You can't change yourself, but you can create conditions in which God can change you. So those five for us are praying, resting, learning, gathering, and contributing. These will be basis of conversation and discipleship. If we're hanging out, getting coffee, hey man, what's your prayer life like? Are you resting? What are you learning? How are you contributing to the local church and to the flourishing of the world? How are you engaged in gathering with people who know Jesus, people who don't know Jesus? How are you using your table? These are questions of discipleship. And real quickly, I'm gonna run through five temptations and we're gonna wrap up our time together this morning. There are five temptations, I believe, of practicing disciples. Some of these you might fall into. Some of these I fall into at times and seasons, okay? The first temptation is what I call the crowd complex. These are disciples and sometimes some of us who just ooh and ah the miracles of Jesus. He's great. I'll follow him on Instagram. I will celebrate him from afar. I will wear his jersey. But I ain't practicing those teachings. It's the crowd complex, okay? Jesus has tons of people that quote-unquote, follow him, but they're never disciples of him. Some of us fall into this category, crowd complex. Rah, rah, Jesus, but I'm not going to do what you say. The second thing, oh, the first one is like Bible Belt culture to the T. I'm a Christian. You don't look like it, bro. Let's be honest. The second thing is consumption. This one's one I struggle with. I think many of us do. This is just simply ingesting good spiritual content. We just consume ideas about Jesus, not simply after more information, though. As we mentioned earlier, we're actually after transformation, not knowledge about Jesus, but actually knowing Jesus. Some of us just consume information about Jesus. We're not good practitioners. We're good thinkers about Jesus. Consume, consume, consume. I got a PhD in theology, but I don't practice the way of Jesus. I'm a pastor, but I make a terrible disciple. I've been a Christian since I was six, but I'm miserable and I'm mean to my neighbors and but I got a lot of information. I know the verses. I've been, to, I've been to vacation Bible school. Felt boards. I got you. Consumption. Here's the other temptation. It's compartmentalization. And this is the one that is a silent killer for all of us. We often think that following Jesus is just an aspect of our life. Not the totality of it. Some of us think, oh yeah, I'll put Jesus in this little corner over here amidst the rest of my life. I'll put following Jesus kind of on the edge of the fringe. He's there. He's not central. Compartmentalization is a silent killer, and we have to examine our life to see, do we compartmentalize Jesus and his teachings in our life? The next one is compromise, another one that just ramsacks our culture, especially in a post-truth modern West. This is where we relegate truth to what feels right. So we compromise, sometimes on the basis of not feeling... um, like we enjoy what Jesus just said. But listen, I invite that person to be a part of the community. 
wrestle with the teachings. Because he says some stuff. I'm like, I don't like that, bro. Mm-mm. I do not love your enemies, bro, please. You know? We compromise. Sometimes our ethics look more like the modern era than they do the teachings of Jesus. And the fifth thing is just being careless. This is the not wise. This is not so much about sin. This is like you're just not being wise. Okay? Jesus never says it's a sin to eat your car. It's just stupid. Like, don't go biting on your car. That's dumb. Right? Don't punch your hand in the brick. Jesus never says that's a sin. It's just stupid. All right? It's not wise. It's careless. Sometimes we fall into this category as well. Careless. These are five temptations. And I want you to honestly look at yourself and say, where do I tend to fall in these temptations? Crowd complex consumption, compartmentalization, compromise, and careless. A couple months ago, my wife and I were in New York City. I'm going to get the band to come on up. We're going we're to wrap up here together this morning. We were in New York City visiting. Never been to New York before. It was amazing. Kristen gave us some good things to do. Jess Schuler, thank you for all the things you gave us to do in New York. It was a blast. And we, we got a chance to go and experience the High Line in Chelsea. If you've ever been to New York City, I, I, I would suspect you've been to the High Line. If you haven't been, I would encourage you to experience the High Line at some point. I think I have a picture of it on the screen for you guys to actually see what the High Line looks like. It's this beautiful 1.5-mile greenway that goes right through the heart of Manhattan. And I started thinking to myself that this high line is very similar to the way of Jesus. It's flourishing in the chaos. In the midst of the hustle and bustle of New York City, it's flourishing. It's got greenery. It's beautiful. It's like a breath of fresh air. The way of Jesus in the midst of the turmoil, the turbulence, and the disturbance of our current modern era is like the High Line in New York City. If you adopt the way of Jesus, you will navigate the chaos. You'll still hear it. It'll still be present. You'll see it. But if you follow that path, you will experience the good life. Not the easy life. The full life of abundance. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life and only a few find it. Howard Thurman has this quote. To the persistent knock at the door, there is an answer. The secret is to be able to want one thing, to seek one thing, to organize the resources of one's life around a single end. And slowly, surely, the life becomes one with that end. If you orient your life around the way of Jesus, you will experience flourishing and abundance in the midst of the chaos.